Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM. It is your local independent community radio station that you are tuned to. My name is Andy and I will be with you for the next hour. Coming to you again from across the ditch in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, but acknowledging Jagger and Turable people as the Tangata Fenua, as they'd say here, the people of the land. They're in Brisbane where this is being broadcast, and of course, whatever uh, people have been living and taking care of wherever you're listening to this from. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about the U.S. alliance, Australia's uh, connectedness to the United States of America, and all that it means for us, mostly at a strategic military level, Um, although, of course, the influence of the United States on our culture runs very deep in lots of ways, but we can save that for another time. Today, we're going to talk about what it means for our armed forces and whether that's a good thing and maybe what we can do about that. I've got an interview with Clinton Fernandez, who was a major in the Australian Army, actually, and is still on uh, the books of the military teachers uh, strategy at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Um, and he's just written a book called Sub-Imperial Power, which is an attempt to, uh, to kind of lay out where does Australia fit in kind of global power relations, actually, and what does it all mean for us? And it's an amazing interview, actually. I'm uh, very happy to share it with you because Clint Fernandez is a quite a blunt person. With he's obviously uh, very knowledgeable on the subject of Australia's defence strategy, or as he um, is happy to call it, our offence strategy. But he's very honest, and we do in fact chat a bit about the use of military jargon and the way it kind of misleads the public and the kind of public discourse around the military in this country. And so um, stick around. It's an excellent interview. Uh, At the end of the show, I also talked to Vince Scapatura, who's from the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, who at the end of last year released uh, a report that they'd been putting together on a people's inquiry into the U.S. alliance. They uh, did a survey of as many people and organizations as they could about the 
US Alliance and how Australians feel about it and they have collated their findings into a report which you can go and find online or you can uh, stay tuned till the end of the show when you'll hear Vince Scapatura talk a bit about it. So that's what's coming up. It will be a packed show, so I'm going to get straight into it and start playing my interview with Clinton Fernandez. It starts off with the audio a bit scratchy, but it does get better a couple of minutes into the interview. So hang in there. There's some quality content. So Clinton, today we're going to talk about uh, the new book that you've written called Sub-Imperial Power. But maybe to start off with, can you give us a bit of background about yourself and the work that you've done? I guess it's led you to the kind of analysis of Australian strategic policy that you've written. Sure. Uh, Well, I'm a professor at the University of New South Wales in the Canberra campus. uh, And I am part of what's called the Future Operations Research Group. Uh, The Future Operations Research Group examines the military, strategic, and generally the operational environment that the Australian Defence Force is likely to face uh, over the 5, 10, 15-year period. Before that, I've been doing that for about 15, 16 years. Before that, uh, I was a major in the Australian Army, uh, and I served in the Army for about 15 years as well. So totally, slightly more than 30-plus years of uh, involvement and thinking about foreign policy, defense policy, uh, national security, that kind of thing. Okay, so let's talk about sub-imperial power, your new book. It's not a new theme for you, I guess, talking about Australia's relationship to the United States. What brought about yes. the book? Uh, well, I wanted to make sure that we could get a, a, a simple but not simplistic understanding of how Australia operates in the world, uh, what's the purpose of our foreign policy, what's the purpose of our defence policy. And it was important, I think, at least as as I saw it, to to get people out of the doctrinal confusions and the misconceptions uh, in order to to see what's really out there. Uh, And in this sense, I knew that we've always been called a middle power, and the middle power that upholds a rules-based international order. Whenever you hear somebody talking about Australian foreign policy, you start talking, you know, people, hear, uh, people talk about a rules-based international order and how we are a middle power or sometimes a good international citizen. And so I wanted to explain what the rules-based international order was and why it was different from, uh, you know, international law, because they don't say we should operate in, in accordance with international law and the United Nations Charter. Uh, they always say, well, we should operate as a rule, you know, to uphold rules-based international order. So I wanted to explain what that rules-based order was. And in that context, uh, to show that we are not actually a middle power uh, and we're not exactly an exploited uh, state either. We are something else. And this is where the concept of the sub-imperial power comes in. Yeah, can you tell us a bit about, I guess, the analysis in in your book and uh, I guess what it means for everyday Australians? Right. Well, uh, when the foreign minister or even the the media talk about... uh, Uh, Australia's role in the world, they talk about upholding a rules-based international order. And uh, I wanted to explain that uh, we are explicitly talking about a rules-based international order in opposition to an order, an international order based on international law and the United Nations Charter. And so uh, the way to understand the rules-based international order is as an imperial order. And let me explain what I mean. When people talk about uh, empires, they traditionally meant the physical occupation of another society and and direct rule of it. You know, so 
the French in Indochina or Britain in India. You know, the British Raj is where the, the emperor of, of Britain, the king of Britain, was also the emperor of India. And so that's the direct physical occupation of a country. But the point of imperialism is actually control over another society's sovereignty, its ability to make independent decisions. Physical occupation is just one way of achieving that. And so modern imperialism is about control of sovereignty, not control of territory. And you can control other countries' sovereignty by the threat of force, as well as the use of force, by intelligence operations that interfere with their, their decision-making, by trade agreements that limit their sovereignty, um, and by investor rights treaties that limit the sovereignty or the ability of governments to act um, and subordinate them to the interests of corporations. And so that's an imperial order. And uh, if one accepts that premise, then the United States sits at the apex of a hierarchically structured imperial order. But Australia in this sense is not exploited. Australia is a wealthy, powerful country uh, where you know, immigrants want to come here. Um, and so the way to understand Australia is as a sub-imperial power. So we are both powerful in our own region. We are extremely powerful. We are an imperial power in the case of Timor, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, uh, and in the past, even Fiji, but we are sub-imperial in the sense that we subordinate our sovereignty uh, to uphold a US-led international order. So that's the basic idea. It's an interesting one because I guess the majority of, of scholarship and thinking these days is that empires are bad and kind of um, colonialism has left a terrible legacy. But... Um, I think strategically, a lot of people would say, well, yes, you want to be on the side of the right side of empire or something like that, the the US and yes. that. Uh, Malcolm Fraser in his book, Dangerous Allies, talked about uh, Australia as always having a need for an imperial power, that the UK was kind of like our um, imperial power and then we transferred to the US and that this was something that Australia wanted. Do you think that people might agree with your analysis but see it as a good thing? Oh, well, look, I'm not actually presenting it as a bad thing or a good thing, you see. My, my, my aim is to inform rather than to persuade. Um, and the idea is that if you explain that the, the, the rules-based international order is an imperial order, it's a, it's a hierarchically structured imperial system, uh, that's not saying that it's good or bad. It's basically trying to demystify the concept of a rules-based order. You know? So when people talk about you know, why we should support the United States or oppose the United States. Uh, that's not really what the book is about. What I'm trying to say is, to, is, is that uh, the rules-based order is not some kind of neutral, benign system, despite its inclusive-sounding name. Um, it is, in fact, an order of exclusion. It's an order of domination. Um, and we are, in fact, a fortunate uh, component of that because, uh, you know, we are the junior partner of the most important uh, imperial power. Uh, and so th that's really what the book is. But it's really an attempt to, to demystify this idea of a rules-based order um, and uh, also to demystify the idea of security. That's, that's the you know, critical aspect of how, how to think about foreign policy. So, for example, uh, when we talk about supporting the United States, it's always presented in defensive terms. It's a security. We need it for our security. And what I want to demonstrate you know, with, the, with the basis of evidence and logic and argument is that to say it's security is actually meaningless. It carries no information because everyone pleads security. Everyone says that the, the, you know, the military stance is defensive. So, for example, we were defending ourselves 
uh, in Iraq. We were defending ourselves in Afghanistan. We are now going to be defending ourselves in the Taiwan Strait. We are going to be defending ourselves in the South China Sea. So to say that this is a defensive alliance uh, is actually a mystification. And what we should be understanding is that it's an offensive alliance. We were the offensive power in Iraq, the offensive power uh, in Afghanistan after a while. I mean, there was an initial justification uh, for some kind of police action uh, to eliminate uh, al-Qaeda terrorists who were taking shelter uh, in Afghanistan under the Taliban. But after a while, it simply became you know, an, imperial, an imperial war. Uh, and now in Taiwan, it's pretty clear um, that the United States is weaponizing the idea of uh, supporting Taiwanese self-determination uh, in order to put pressure on China. And we are purchasing, or we are, we are saying we're going to purchase submarines, nuclear-powered submarines, um, in order to defend ourselves in, or, and the United States in the Taiwan Strait. And that, that is a meaningless statement, which is why we should understand this as an offensive system, not as a defensive system. I will move on to talking about AUKUS in a second, which you just brought up. But I am interested in this idea that you've brought up there about this jargon of rules-based orders and defense, that there is this kind of uh, opaque uh, obfuscation of language when we're talking about the military. And you've used two very good examples there. Um why does it exist, this kind of language, when you used to do the public? And what, um, what is the effect of this language being used when we talk about strategy or military? Well, when we talk about defence, right, look, I am not a traditional kind of member of what's called the left. That's not really my position. You see, I, I'm actually a former military officer, and I now work in future operations research and so on. Uh, but I do believe that the purpose of the Australian Defence Force is to defend Australia uh, rather than, or it ought to be, to defend Australia, not to conduct offensive operations and call them defence. Um, and the purpose of, of calling it defence and security is to pretend that we are a benign force in the world. Right. Uh, but we are not a benign force, for example, in East Timor, where we acted as an imperial power in order to get, get access to their oil. You know, we spied on them. Uh, and when uh, the details of the spying were released, we prosecuted or attempted to prosecute uh, Bernard Caleri, the lawyer who disclosed the operation, uh, and an ASIS officer called Witness K. So controlling Timor's sovereignty is not a defensive act. It's an offensive act. It's an imperial act. Um, and if we say that, then the public would never tolerate that. So the, the term defense and rules-based orders and so on are, are done really as a tool of mystification in order to provide political cover for what are essentially aggressive offensive operations. Uh, and my position is the public should be told honestly what we're doing. Maybe the public will agree with it, maybe they won't. But it's undemocratic to, to conduct these operations and mislead the public by calling them defensive. Okay, let's um, talk about AUKUS, the newest kind of development in Australia's strategy of uh, imperial dependence. Um, when AUKUS, the announcement came out, it was just so strange and out of the blue that a, a lot of us didn't really know how to respond. It was kind of like, is this real? Has anything actually changed? What's going on? Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us what's your, what does the AUKUS alliance actually mean for Australia? Okay, fair enough. Okay, AUKUS, the Australia-UK-US alliance, is uh, essentially a, a technology transfer agreement. It's not a military uh, alliance whereby the three countries, Australia, Britain, and the United States, agree to defend each other. 
right? It's a technology transfer agreement. What technology? The, tra- the technology of, of naval nuclear propulsion. How do you uh, acquire nuclear-powered submarines? That's what AUKUS is. It's not, a, it's not an alliance of you know, mutual defense where there's, a, there's some sort of trigger which allows us to send troops to defend the United States or vice versa. So AUKUS is an, an agreement to transfer uh, nuclear-powered submarine technology to Australia. Now, uh, that's the essence of it. Uh, the reason it, it, it was done in secret, I think, is uh, that it has to, a lot to do with the, uh, the style of the former federal government, and, the, and in particular, the former prime minister. You know, uh, we, we know now from Nikki Sava's new book about uh, uh, Scott Morrison um, that he was, that many of his colleagues believed that he was uh, addicted to secrecy and to executive authority and to unilateral action. And so one condition that the United States imposed on Morrison as prime minister was that if we agree to, to do this nuclear-powered submarines thing, then you've got to get bipartisan support. You've got to get the agreement of the Labour opposition. Uh, Morrison said he would, but did not do anything of the sort until the day before the announcement to the public. Right? And so that was before the federal election and the Labour Party, which was in opposition, uh, probably felt it had no option but to say, yep, we'll go along with it as well, uh, you know, because uh, they didn't want to be outflanked politically on the right. Uh, but AUKUS itself uh, is, uh, I believe, a way to keep Australia more dependent and to prevent Australia uh, actually having an independent defence policy that is integrated with our region. Rather, uh, AUKUS is going to make Australia dependent defensively and integrated with global NATO, not with our region. And this all is very relevant now as the news daily at the moment is filled with stories about Taiwan um, and China. I guess mm-hmm. this is where the, the pointy end of Australia's position as a sub-imperial power to the US comes out when we talk about global conflict and things like that. Um, what do you think, yes. what does it mean for Australia yeah. in this stage um, with a potential um, action so. around Taiwan? Well, you know, your focus on AUKUS in that respect is, is very appropriate because here's the thing. Uh, I'm of the view that submarines are absolutely essential for Australia's defense. We are an island nation and about 95% of our trade by weight uh, moves via the sea, and the rest via the air, of course. Uh, and submarines are essential for securing trade routes, for uh, deterring an, an adversary. Uh, um, and submarine, if, if the future Australian government decided that it wanted to have a, a more regionally focused uh, independent defense policy, that policy would require submarines. We, we need submarines to defend Australia, but we don't need nuclear powered submarines, right? So conventional submarines are ultra quiet. In fact, air independent propulsion submarines are quieter than nuclear submarines, nuclear powered submarines. Nuclear powered submarines are actually noisier. They have uh, in noisy meshing gears between the uh, the turbine and the propeller and their reactor cooling pump has always got to be turned left on. It can't be turned off. Uh, and so it's quite noisy compared to uh, conventionally powered air independent propulsion submarines. Furthermore, uh, these nuclear powered submarines are very expensive. It's, the estimated cost is eight boats for $170 billion. We could buy 20 ultra quiet conventional submarines for $30 billion. And we could develop the technology and the servicing and the engineering to maintain them over the life of the submarine. And we would not be alone. So Germany, which is an advanced technological power, uh, Italy, 
uh, also you know, important industrialized power, Portugal, Spain, Singapore, South Korea, Japan, all have air independent propulsion submarines, conventional submarines, because for them, those submarines are for their defense. Nuclear powered submarines are not relevant to Australia's security. Their purpose is to integrate Australia's Navy into the United States Navy in order to put pressure on China and perhaps go to war in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. Conventionally powered submarines are absolutely essential for our security. Um, you know, I can't imagine an independent defense policy in the absence of submarines, but nuclear powered submarines are not there for the defense of Australia. They are there in order to, to make the Royal Australian Navy essentially uh, you know, uh, a part of uh, the United States Navy. And that's the problem with it. Now, once again, if that's the way it goes, then that's fine. But the public should be told what the purpose is, what the real purpose is. Um, you know, and I, I, I don't believe that's occurring. The, the public is not being told uh, what these submarines are going to do and why they are not relevant to the defense of Australia. Are there concerns, I mean, in a, a changing global order, I guess, where there are, you know, potentially changes happening? I mean, if... Australia's attachment to the U.S. that we have through these submarines, through the U.S. bases um, on our country, our strategic mm -hmm. dependence, could it lead us into trouble in the future if things change? Yes. Um, look, the, the, we are not actually buying submarines despite the fact that that's the claim. What we are doing is subsidizing the U.S. Navy's submarine budget so that they set up those boats in Australia. They are nuclear powered. Um, we do not have a domestic nuclear industry. Uh, there is a non-proliferation treaty which requires inspections, and so we aren't going to allow that, which means essentially the United States is going to be doing all the submarines. Now, if you, for example, were to buy a car, but that car could not be repaired, maintained, serviced, upgraded uh, in your own city. They have to, you have to go and send them off to, say, I don't know, Indonesia or New Zealand to do it. Then essentially, you're not actually buying a car. You are subsidizing somebody else's car industry to set it up in your, in your city. Uh, and that's what we're doing with these submarines. Now, what, what would happen in the event of, of these sorts of shooting wars? The submarines would be accompanied by Australian frigates. These frigates have about 170 to 180 sailors on board. Those frigates are very vulnerable in the event of a shooting war if they come within range of the Chinese coastline. Uh, a a, a short-ship missile could sink a frigate and we could lose 170 to 180 sailors in an afternoon. Now, we lost about 40-odd uh, soldiers in Afghanistan over about two decades of, of fighting there along this war. We could lose more than triple that in one afternoon. And what's not been contemplated is the sociological fracture that this would cause, right? So imagine if you lose 170 sailors uh, to a Chinese ship missile, and the public is being told we are the ones being defensive and they're the ones being aggressive. They're not being told the truth that, in fact, we are, in fact, uh, acting offensively. Well, the effect on people of Chinese heritage in Australia would be very traumatic. You know, you could expect uh, attacks on public transport, you know, calls for some Chinese people to be interned in camps. Um, the sociological fracture would be terrible. Uh, and that's not been contemplated. I don't, that's never actually been up for, de, for, de, for debate or discussion. Uh, there are other problems with it, of course, which is that, uh, you know, you can imagine the, the wall-to-wall, understandably, wall-to-wall uh, interviews with uh, uh, schoolmates, uh, high school teachers, parents, uh, children 
off the dead sailors. And that would fundamentally change the, the, the temperature in this country. Uh, and all of that could be avoided if we stayed out of AUKUS's naval nuclear propulsion technology and acquired uh, conventionally powered submarines. You could get, twin, uh, you could get 20 ultra-quiet ones for $30 billion, rather than eight American boats or, or British boats for $170 billion. And plus, you, could, you had much more to spend on other things, not just defense, but on health and education and things like that, infrastructure. Yes, well, that does bring me to the next question of what, in your vision, does... Um, an independent, I guess, non-sub-imperial Australia look like? Uh, well, the, you know, a foreign policy is basically the external expression of your own domestic uh, structure, whether it's economic, political, or whatever else. Um, and you can't have an independent defense policy or an independent foreign policy unless you have, you know, when you've got a dependent economy. And much of um, Australia's exports and so on are really pri primary products. We tend to export the raw materials so that other people elsewhere can, can manufacture smart things and we buy them, we, we then buy those smart things. So we happen to be extremely rich in critical minerals, uh, which are, you know, rare earths and things like that, which are absolutely essential for a high tech world and for the green energy transition. What we could do is set up a national critical minerals company and then invite people, uh, companies from the United States to the European Union to come to Australia, use those critical minerals, but uh, transfer some of the technology to us so we can manufacture smart things ourselves, right? The ambition should be to see us as more than simply a quarry uh, where, uh, you know, or, or just an oil field. Uh, it should be to, to, to try and, and develop Australia uh, uh, and help us climb the technology ladder, make smart things uh, and, and, and things like that. And our foreign policy and defense policy would then absolutely require us to have a defense, uh, you know, defense force that can defend. Right now, the Royal Australian Air Force, uh, parts of them are basically developed to be wings of the United States Air Force. You'd have to have uh, purchases that are more relevant to us rather than simply designed to support the United States uh, in the United Arab Emirates or uh, Qatar, uh, you know, fighting wars in the Middle East or somewhere else. You'd have to have a, a defense force that was uh, oriented towards the defense of Australia, not just a continental defense, but you know, the sea lanes and, um, and trade routes and so on. Um, and that's what it would look like. It would look like being integrated into the region, uh, into regular exercises with Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, rather than 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan. That's what the last 20 years of a non-sub-imperial power uh, foreign policy would have looked like. Uh, and that's not been done. You know, you could have had, for example, Australian um, uh, officers uh, going to study uh, in Indonesian staff college and vice versa, Malaysians and Indonesians coming to study here. That kind of regional integration, whilst maintaining Australian independence and a very powerful defence force, is what an independent defence policy would look like. I'm interested in how the military takes your ideas, given that you were a major in the military, you're still involved, but you're quite critical of very um, key decisions that have been made uh, militarily. I mean, what's been the response to you and the things that you've said? Well, we're speaking in November 2022, and the book only came out last month, so there hasn't been much response. I, I think people at the Defence Force are getting ready to you know, wind up for the end of the year and so on, and maybe they'll read it over the Christmas break. But the Defence Force is apolitical, and, and that's not really, uh, you know, I don't expect them to change policy. That's a decision for the, for the, for the public. 
uh, and it's a decision for parliament, or it ought to be, uh, and for the government, because the defense forces is apolitical, and that's a very good thing, and simply int- uh, implements the the uh, the policies of the elected government of the day. But but in terms of the reception at the military, strategic, technical level, yes, it's been positive. Basically, the, they understand, the people I've spoken to understand that the argument is sound, right? It's just, it's not their role to implement defense policy. It's uh, to, 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 to sort of formulate defense policy. That's, that's a political idea. It's a political role for the government and parliament. Uh, but the, at the level of uh, technical understanding of how one develops an independent defense force, uh, yep, there is agreement. There is no real, no real doubts about uh, how one does this. Well, I guess the the question then is, politically, is there scope for change, you know, um, or does the U.S. influence um, hold so tightly to Australia's uh, political class that, you know, the change isn't possible? Yeah, well, I think, that, I think change is possible here for this reason, and there are a number of reasons, actually. One is the prohibitive cost of these nuclear-powered submarines. Just imagine, I just want to re-emphasize this, eight boats for $170 billion versus 20 for 30 billion. In terms of cost, there's no doubt that we shouldn't be getting these boats. Uh, but also, you know, and, and given the fact that the world is, is reading from supply chain shortages and it's a period of austerity, uh, you know, there are obviously trade-offs that have to be made. And I think there's a publicly, a, a politically, there, there are good sound arguments uh, that can be made. Uh, but also it has to do with public awareness, which is why, you know, you and I are talking and people are listening. Uh, so that um, they can demand that this matter be debated in Parliament, that it be deb- debated at Brisbane Town Hall, for example, that information, uh, you know, events be, be held, rather than simply presenting the decision as a fait accompli and everybody expected to simply go along with it. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, Clinton, is there anything else you wanted to leave us with? No, no, thank you very much for the opportunity, and I hope you get to uh, your 12 senators in Queensland. Uh, and uh, various members of parliament to demand that these things be debated in parliament. And it may well be that the public supports uh, AUKUS, which is fine if that's the case. I have no problem with it. But I just don't like the idea of misleading the public under the grounds that this is some sort of defensive system, and it's not. All right. Thanks, Clint. And how can people get the book if they're interested in finding out more? Oh, I guess they just go to a bookshop. You know? <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, Clinton. Thank you. Bye-bye. On the paradigm shift on 4ZZZ, I was talking with Clinton Fernandez, who is in Australia's defence uh, milieu. He was a major in the army. He still um, does strategic policy for defence, and he's written a book called Sub-Imperial Power, which you can uh, read if you're interested in finding out more detail about what we talked about, um, where he... I would say is fairly critical of the U.S. alliance and where it might take Australia. He's at least um, honest. <laughs> he does say that the defense force is uh, apolitical. I don't know about that. I see politics everywhere, but um, at very least, he sort of says that it's up to the Australian public to um, try to influence the way that our the, our military strategy will go and at the moment the more powerful the US influence gets in that sector then the less power the Australian public has and so that's one of the reasons why he wants things to be debated openly and honestly 
that's one of the things I'm trying to do in making this radio show today as well. I think it's very important too, and our mainstream media is so weighed um, in favor of the interests of big corporations, which often have ties to the U.S. and its military-industrial complex, um, and tied to, I guess, the voices of kind of uh, patriotism and uh, xenophobia and warmongering, which uh, have so often uh, been prominent parts of not just our society, but many societies. And so there's a lot of work for us to do if we want to influence society in another way. Clinton's done his uh, bit for now by writing that book. Um, and so I guess we need to figure out what the rest of us can do to try to influence change before it's too late. And that leads me to the next interview, which is with Vince Scapatura, who's from an organization called IPAN, Independent and Peaceful Australia Network. It's a bit of a coalition of different groups that are trying to, I guess, change that discourse. And they have just released a report based on what they call a people's inquiry about the U.S. alliance. I think this kind of thing is very important. Um, because we need to find some way of breaking these discussions out of just kind of intellectual circles or academia or things like that and try to work out how can we get political power from the average person who doesn't believe in fighting American wars or serving America's imperial interests. Um, how do we turn that into political power? And for that we need people other than just writers and commentators, we need to talk about social movement building. And so uh, IPAN's People's Inquiry is a start. Let's have a listen to Vince. So my name is Vince Scapatura. I teach politics and international relations at Macquarie University. And I was also one of the lead uh, panel members for the uh, release of the new IPAN report, the Independent Peaceful Australian Network report on uh, People's Inquiry into Australia's alliance with the United States. Yes, I'm interested in talking about uh, IPAN's recent report. So first off, could you tell us how did the report come about and what was the idea behind it? Sure, thanks. Yeah, so this has been uh, at least kind of two years in the making. Um, there was lots of concern among uh, among IPAN and uh, what IPAN was hearing from its very extensive kind of activist network. Uh, that uh, you know most of the mainstream media discourse is dominated by elite perspectives on the alliance which uh, are really very kind of pro uh, a, 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 or kind of in favor of an ever closer relationship with the United States without without much kind of critical thinking uh, and yet there is a uh, you know a section a subsection of the Australian population that uh, does have real critical concerns about Australia's alliance with the United States and where it's heading us. Uh, and so the idea was was there should be an avenue for those voices to be heard uh, within, you know, the broader Australian discourse. So, uh, yeah, a People's Inquiry uh, was established and it uh, took public submissions. Uh, it was a really great uh, response, in fact. There were around 300 submissions from all across Australia. And it wasn't just your typical kind of national security commentary at types. I mean, there were, you know, academics and journalists and others were 
interested in this space, uh, making very important submissions too, but most of the submissions were just from ordinary Australians, civil society groups and organisations that are generally, you know, critical of the United, uh, critical of the Alliance and Australia's defence policy, but they don't get an airing um, generally in the in the kind of mainstream media. So um, yeah, that was kind of the the reason for the and the origins of the of the inquiry. So what were some of the findings? Right. So I've got I've got a copy of the of the report um, in my hands right now. It's a very um, comprehensive document. It it runs for just over a hundred pages. And there were two two aspects to the inquiry. So one, as I mentioned, was uh, kind of questioning Australia's uh, you know, uh, pursuit of an ever closer relationship with the United States, uh, looking at what the costs and consequences of the alliance are. So that was one part of it. And the other part of it was looking at what the alternatives could be. Yeah, so in terms of the, uh, the issues, highlighting the issues with Australia's alliance with the United States, I'll, I'll probably focus just on the section that I... I was a panel leader for, which was military and defence, because that's the area that I'm most familiar with. So uh, I think that, I mean, there were a lot of areas of concern, concerns about sovereignty, concerns about Australia being dragged into another kind of disastrous war with the United States, as we have been for, you know, in, in decades past, uh, particularly in the context of kind of the pivot to the Indo-Pacific with the United States uh, you know, uh, withdrawing from the Middle East, uh, more or less, and, and pivoting to the Indo-Pacific region and kind of gearing up for a uh, for preparations with conflict with China. There was a real uh, concern within uh, the submissions about Australia being uh, dragged into such a conflict. Um, as I mentioned, there was concerns about sovereignty, about uh, the level of integration between Australia and the US uh, militarily, eco uh, economically, diplomatically, uh, in terms of intelligence integration, that, that is leading to a, you know, the hosting of US, um, ever-increasing US uh, bases and forces in Australia, particularly the north of Australia, that this is um, leading to a situation where it will become almost impossible for any future Prime Minister of Australia to say no to the United States if they asked us to support uh, a war with China over a, you know, a conflict in the South China Sea or over Taiwan or something like that. Um, there was uh, uh, also concerns um, about uh, the way that Australia's Defence Force is structured to act as a kind of adjunct to the US military. That as a result of the alliance, we, we, we uh, buy these very exquisite, expensive military and defence systems that um, can neatly integrate or play a niche role uh, in, in whatever um, war plans the United States is drawing up. Um, but they're not particularly useful for the kinds of contingencies that would require, uh, you know, the, the defence of Australia and the Australian continent, the Australian air and maritime approaches. And uh, it's not only about concern that we're structuring our defence forces, you know, to be an adjunct to the US military and not for the purposes of the defence of Australia, but also we're prioritising the wrong threat. I mean, the greatest threat to the well-being and security of Australians is not China. The uh, most important priority um, is climate change. Uh, climate change is undoubtedly the, you know, the most significant uh, uh, defence uh, and security issue uh, and environmental issue, of course, uh, for Australia moving forward. Uh, and yet uh, our defence establishment seems to be totally oblivious to that and all the focus is on China. And I think that is a, you know, a symptomatic of our relationship with the United States because that's where the US focus is and so inev inevitably that's where our focus is. So that was some of the some of the some of the key concerns that came out of the 
the report. One of the other things things you've emphasised is is Australia Australia as yet abstaining abstaining from the the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons weapons, weapons, and that that could be something that could change. change. Right, yeah. So this is another another, um, consequence of Australia's alliance with the United States undermining our own security and global security. Uh, The only existential threats to Australia are climate change and nuclear war. Um, And yet it's on these two areas that Australia is either not doing anything or moving backwards. Uh, or in fact being obstructionist, and particularly when it comes to uh, uh, concern about nuclear proliferation, um, where we're being obstructionist. And we're being obstructionist because um, of our alliance with the United States. So there is a you know, monumental uh, treaty, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, uh, that, was, um, uh, that was negotiated through the United Nations uh, and, and, and done so through very important Australian uh, uh, advocacy organisation, um, ICANN, um, uh, and uh, Australia has refused to sign that uh, because of its concerns about imperiling our relationship with the United States and because of pressure from the United States. So signing that treaty is one of the recommendations in the report, of which there are many, and I guess our listeners can go and read that report. But I guess the other question is about power, about how can... Uh, those of us who are critical of the U.S. alliance uh, kind of enact that in a, a society where there are very powerful forces that uh, bind us to the U.S. Right, yeah. I mean, um, the U.S. alliance has, has kind of deep and broad support in Australia among the national security elite. Uh, and uh, the, the kind of pro-alliance discourse really dominates um, dominates, you know, mainstream kind of sources. Uh, but, uh, and, and of course, even at the Australian public level, I mean, uh, you know, survey after survey shows that uh, the majority of Australians, uh, when asked, do they support Australia's alliance with the United States uh, and what kind of feelings they have towards, you know, the ANZUS Treaty and, uh, and our relationship with the United States generally, uh, there's majority support, support opinion for that. But uh, when you dig down deeper into the survey results um, and you ask Australians questions like, should we join the US uh, in a conflict over China, in a, in a contingency over Taiwan or in the South China Sea, uh, there is strong opposition to that. Uh, and so there's a kind of a disconnect. I think Australian public just seems to be somewhat confused because there's support for the alliance, but not really a good understanding of um, what, uh, where the alliance is likely to lead us. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, the options available to, to activist networks are, are, are the usual ones. Um, it's the kind of thing that, you know, IPAM was doing with this inquiry, just kind of using, um, using our own kind of networks, our own um, tapping into to, to those people who are, you know, have those concerns and doing as best we can to, to amplify those voices. Okay, thanks very much, Vince. Thanks, Andy. That was Vince Scapatura there, a politics lecturer at Macquarie University. And like our other guest, Clinton Fernandez, somebody who has written a book about U.S. influence in Australian politics. His book was called The U.S. Lobby and Australian Defense Policy. No uh, fancy metaphors there. And he was talking about the IPAN People's Inquiry into the U.S. Alliance, IPAN's Independent Peaceful Australia Network. You can read that report 
on their website, ipan.org.au. You can also order a hard copy of it through that website and there's loads of other resources on there if you are interested in finding out more info. And of course, you can also read Clint Fernandez's book, Sub-Imperial Power, um, wherever you get your books from, uh, either bookstores or libraries, of course, always a good option. And yeah, certainly the American influence in Australia is something that we need to talk about for a few reasons. One, of course, is that we've already foolishly been led into a couple of disastrous American wars in recent decades, failing to learn from the lessons of Vietnam, and we are quite possibly going to be led into another one in China. And one of the other reasons being that it is possible that even if every Australian said that we didn't want to go to uh, war with China, that uh, the American military is so hardwired into our own uh, military infrastructure that we wouldn't be able to say no, or that we actually we would be the subject of one of the many uh, American imperial takeovers that has happened in the last couple of centuries. And I think when we talk about you know imperial powers, that is one of the things to remember that ultimately it comes down to blunt power, and America hasn't been afraid to to use that in the past. And so, for the very sake of, I guess, freedom and um, sovereignty as a, a nation, I'm not a big fan of nations, but it's certainly better than uh, lack of sovereignty being controlled by an overseas power. Um, there's lots of reasons why we need to talk about American influence in Australia and why, again, we need to talk about movements for change. How can we influence change? Because there's... Uh, a lot of very powerful people that are very tightly interwoven into uh, American power. And so for ordinary people like you and me, we need to work out what strategies we've got in our toolbox. That's all we have time for on the Paradigm Shift for another week. Hope you enjoyed the show today. Of course, um, we'll be back next Friday with more important things to talk about. I'll see you then.